five. Nice. And in the White Bible, where are we at in the White Bible? Twenty something. Might not have a White Bible. So if you got a blue Bible, page six ninety five. If you don't have a Bible, somebody can get one to you if you want. What is it? Twenty four in the White. Nice. All right, so let's read the passage and then we'll uh, talk about it a little bit. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's their big question. He called the little child and he had him stand among them and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the passage goes further, but we're just going to focus on a small part. Just that part we just read. And this also happens in Mark chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 9, actually, believe it or not, if you wanted to read about it and look more at it maybe this week. So let me start off by telling you a, a, a quick experience I had a couple of weeks ago. So at work... Um, I am on this uh, committee at work. We have all these committees at the school that, I don't know, I guess try and help the school run better and contribute significant ideas that should be helpful, but honestly nothing ever gets done, so everyone just tries, tries to stay quiet so we can get out as fast as possible. Um, this particular committee is, uh, that I'm serving on this year is supposed to have a strong emphasis uh, and, and with a focus on supporting the school-wide mission. And so it kind of puts me in a bind sometimes because it's a Catholic church, and so I have to somehow help and contribute to like helping with that school mission. And so even if I wanted to say a lot, I, I, I really couldn't say a ton really anyways. So it's difficult because... I'm committed to like the Great Commission. I'm committed to the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm committed to like feeding on the Bible and God's Word each and every day by the second. And I know that it's just so far from maybe the other, a lot of the other mindsets that are there. So we split up in these groups and we were supposed to uh, be talking about, this is our last meeting, we're supposed to be talking about uh, maybe some things we could do differently for the next year. And one of the things we were talking about is retreats. Because uh, what we do is one day, uh, we actually get a day off from the school, which is great, and we go on a retreat. And what we do is we go to uh, maybe another school, or sometimes we'll go uh, maybe to another property, a big building, and has lunch and stuff. And they'll have a speaker come, and then they'll speak, and then we'll like divide up into groups and talk about stuff. And it's, it's basically a nice day off, you know, where you, where you get to eat and... It's always amusing to look around when the speaker's talking to see how many faculty members are like in a coma during the guy's talking because he, you know, they're just like, you know, just totally out of it. And some of them are like right in the front row. I'm like, yeah. So, uh, so this particular meeting, we're, we're dividing up into groups, talking about the retreats, and so I'm with a, another guy. And the question was, um, how could we maybe improve or maybe do a better job with retreats? And so, already in my mind, I'm like, man, there's like so many things I would love to do. But I also don't want to overwhelm the person that I'm with and act like I'm not a team player either. So, it's like, ah, you know, how do I bring stuff up? And so I gave some suggestions as far as, well, maybe we could talk about, we always hear about the history of our school. Maybe we could talk about, you know, how, how maybe Jesus would like be a teacher 
you know, or something like that, or maybe how you know, self-control is like a big issue for guys, especially young guys, you know, or like leadership in the school, and the guy across from me is already looking at me like, you're already going way too far. And so uh, as I'm thinking that, he actually tells me, he goes, you know, he goes, I think they're pretty much fine. He said, uh, we could get really crazy with this thing, but we don't want to do that. We just want our day off. We get some food, you know, and, and take off. And I was like, ah, oh, man, you know, it, it's... The language, even within, like, the, the documents that sort of founded the school, or the language um, specifically says that it's like a ministry to, like, help the kids. It's a ministry. It's a ministry. And so, like, on a retreat day, you would hope that the common idea, the common vision is just to soak up the Holy Spirit and figure out how I could better minister to the kids, you know, in the classroom, out of the classroom, as a coach, as an advisor, you know, whatever. Eh, punch in, punch out. Just, just do whatever, you know, it's fine. I've noticed that uh, Julie and I moved to the, uh, to the valley, which I didn't really know about the valley, right? It gets that title, the valley. Uh, we, we moved here like uh, five years ago, and I grew up in the Hartford area. Julie grew up in Orange, New Haven area, and um, we lived with the in-laws for a couple of years to save some cash, and then uh, we ended up getting a house in Naugatuck about five years ago. And so when we moved here, I didn't really understand that much of this connotation of the valley. I thought it was beautiful. It's, it's really nice, especially you can go down like Route 8, and you go through the mountains there, and like the river's right there, you know, and it's just, I don't know, it's really nice. Um, but over time, I've come to see and just notice that there is like this particular sort of attitude of kind of like apathy, of sort of like kind of ho-hum, just kind of get through what you got to get through. And I don't get a strong sense of like really a joyful community really in the valley. It's like people just kind of stick to their thing and... You know, just, uh, I, I don't know. It's just this, the other side, I don't see like this aspiring to greatness, like wanting to get more out of life, like to do better, like to push on for more. Maybe I've just been around the wrong people in the valley, and I don't know. Maybe I need to just talk and be around more, but I just haven't noticed that as a whole. And, if that's not even really a thought of like how great can I be like how much you know can I do or you know what can I accomplish because you can get consumed in that right that's a double-edged sword but if that's not even really part of the mindset in regular life it's really difficult to now take in your spiritual life and like look for greatness how could I be greatly used by God How could I be great in the kingdom? So for Christians, you know, I think number one, that's like a good question, you know, to ask. Um, I think that some people, you know, right away, that would be a weird question. They'd be like, well, you know, I don't even know if there even is a kingdom of heaven, you know, or anything like that. Um, but this idea of greatness, like if we're Christians, this idea of being great, having greatness... I would think if we're a Christian, it would be at the forefront of our minds. Like, how could I be greatly used by God? Like, who wants to be mediocrely, mediocre, I don't know, kind of used by God? Right? Like, who wants to, 
It's the only substitute word I can come up with. Who wants to be kind of, sort of used by God sometimes and in a little bit of a way? What? That wasn't the way, you know, Jesus really lived his life. And so I think this idea of being great for the kingdom. Yeah, I don't want to just... And I know on some days it's just, man, I just want to survive as a Christian. I get that. I get that. But that shouldn't be an everyday mindset. We want to be, man, what great things can God do through me? So we're going to talk about some of that today. And we're going to talk about what some of the barriers might be. And then what we'll do is we'll close up by saying three particular actions that will help set us up for greatness in the kingdom. Alright? So that's what we're going to do. So our passage, right? Matthew 18, we just read through it. We'll look at a couple observations and then we'll uh, get down to these three things that will help us to be greatly used by God. And just as a quick side note, so today, right, you might see red uh, on the lectern there and red behind me on the altar here. Um, This idea of greatness plays in well to really the theme for today, which some people might not know. So today is um, the church celebrates on the church calendar the day of Pentecost. So the day of Pentecost is when, like, Jesus, you know, went away. So he went to the hill. He's already crucified. He rose from the dead. He's about to leave and depart. He's hanging out with his crew right there on the mountain. And he says, um, you know, I'm going to go away now. Wait for the gift that I promised for you. Wait for the gift. And he says, in the meantime, go out, baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or make disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're called to make disciples. And so what they did is they waited for about 50 days. On that 50th day, which would be today, depending on what calculator or what um, calendar you're looking at, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. That gift came. Because Jesus said, when I leave, wait for something to come. So they waited for something to come. They just kind of prayed and waited. They didn't know what to do next. And the Holy Spirit came. And that right there, that's like our greatness ticket is the Holy Spirit. That's the one right there that gives us access, that gives us ability. So we can't even think about really being greatly used by God unless we have a pretty good understanding about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. So I just wanted to let you know about why you see the red up here and then why it's an important day in the church calendar. Alright, so let's take a look at the story here. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So here's observation number one. There's obviously some fighting words here. So some fighting words from the disciples. And why do I say fighting? Because in Mark chapter 9, it says that they're actually arguing with each other. They're actually arguing with each other. And so uh, what had happened was that um, if you go back uh, in chapter 17, uh, Peter, James, and John were just with Jesus on the mountain. And Jesus was transfigured, changed in front of their eyes into like his heavenly glory. Um, Moses and Elijah show up. It's like, it's amazing. They come down the mountain. There's a big argument going on down there because there's a boy who's possessed by a demon. And so Jesus is like, hey, you know, what's going on? And they're like, well, your disciples, you know, they tried to, you know, set this boy free, you know, and it didn't work. And so they're in a big argument because the disciples, you know, tried to heal him, tried to pray for him, put hands on him, and nothing was going on. And so the Pharisees are like, no, 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 you know, you can't do that. I told you it doesn't work. And, you know, so then they're arguing. So Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, he doesn't say, he actually heals the boy right there. And then afterwards, he tells the disciples, 
you know, they asked me, say, you know, how come we couldn't do it? You know, we've been able to do this. He goes, well, that one only comes out, that particular demon or spirit comes out by prayer and fasting, which apparently they hadn't been doing. And so now they're walking on the road. And somehow the topic comes up about who's going to be the greatest. I don't know how the topic really comes up. I don't know what their mindset is. Well, I guess I could kind of see. I could see maybe like Peter, James, or John like walking down and going to Philip be like, hey, did you go on the mountain? No, I didn't go on the mountain. You know, I see, hey, did you uh, hear what happened on the mountain? No, you know. Well, I heard something. Yeah, I was there, you know. Yeah, but you didn't do that thing the other day with that healing with, you know, that woman. Well, yeah, you know. And so I could, like, see, you could see it maybe develop kind of like that. And then they get into this big argument about who's going to be the greatest. Well, I went on the mountain, you know, and I did it, and I did these miracles, and I took part in this. And so now they're arguing, you know, with each other. And uh, one thing I do like about the argument, before we get into maybe what we don't like and maybe what Jesus didn't like, one thing I do like is that they were at least concerned about the kingdom of heaven. Like they saw it as a reality. Like we're actually going to go there someday. We're going to take part. We're going to live there. We're going to spend the bulk of our days there. So that's pretty, at least they're thinking that way. I mean, some people, you know, today, you know, uh, what are you going to do in heaven? What's the kingdom of heaven like? I think most conversations today in 2013 are like, there isn't even one. I mean, it's just, it's just not there. I mean, there's just no God, you know, and you know, all these horrible things that happen is proof that there's no God and there's no way that God could, like, preserve a Bible and all these, you know, people wrote it and kingdom of heaven. It's just a non-issue. It's a non-issue. So I'm at least glad they're thinking that it is an issue and that it's important to them. The kingdom of heaven is at least important to them. That's great. Now, the part that's not good is that Jesus had been hanging out with them the whole time and never once was his focus on like who's going to be you know, the greatest in the kingdom. His focus had been on serving, on healing, on teaching. And it's like, ah, oh, you know, they just didn't get it. There's times in class, you know, and I'm teaching a particular concept. And, uh, you know, I'll pass back a test or a quiz. And actually, a couple weeks ago it happened. They were just awful, awful. It's like the worst ones of the term. And uh, it's on quadratic equations, as I'm sure you know a lot about. But um, they're on quadratic equations. You know, they're just awful. So I passed them back. I said, guys, I said, you know... And I asked them first. I pressed it. I said, like, how long would you say you honestly studied? And it's pretty good, because they're pretty honest with me. Because they know I'm just pretty much a straight shooter, and they just can appreciate that. And I'm like, okay, you know, raise your hand if you spent... if you spent at least 10 minutes studying. Already, half the hands are down. And only half of them are up. Okay, how many of you spent at least a half an hour really studying? I don't mean just looking at problems like writing them down. I only got three hands up now. And so, like, it's no wonder that they're bombing out. And I tell them, I say, you know, you make me feel like the worst teacher ever. I am the worst. And then occasionally, you know, I'll get the student, Mr. Murphy, it's not you. It's me. You know, they'll be honest about it. And you got to figure, maybe it was kind of similar with Jesus, where he's just been teaching these guys and investing into these guys three years, watching it. How awesome it would be to like be his apprentice and be like rolling with Jesus, you know, like everywhere. And they're, now they're arguing about who's going to be the best. It's like, wow. 
That was disappointing. Jesus probably told him, I must be the worst teacher ever. But this concept, this situation that happened actually led um, to a really good conversation, believe it or not. Jesus used this very teachable moment to address a lot of issues. And so we're only looking at one issue, but if you can see in your Bible, like chapter 18, you know, it's got 35 verses in it. There's a lot of things that come up in there about people being lost and about people sinning against you and Jesus takes it all over the place. So the fighting words, Jesus figured out how he could use it. Here's observation number two, front and center. How does Jesus respond to this question about who's going to be the greatest? Well, verse two, he says, he called uh, a little child and had him stand among them. So here's observation number two, is front and center. So the first observation was fighting words. Everybody say fighting words. That's right. Observation number two is front and center. Say front and center. Right, because he had a kid come up front and center. So it's like he went downstairs, grabbed up one of the kids, you know, had him stand like right here or right there, whatever group we would be in. And what he was uh, going to do, he's going to say, hey, listen, I'm going to show you based on this little child, exactly, we're going to define greatness right now based on a little child. Like, What? That seems strange. I don't know if I'd pick out a child. I think I might pick, I might make Moses show up again from the dead or like get Elijah or like call David down or get some greatness going on. But he like gets, you know, a young child. So he has them come front and center. And what he's going to show through the child is that in their minds, right, they're thinking about greatness. Greatness, And I wrote down a couple words like from the original language. Uh, they were externally focused on greatness. They were thinking about who could be esteemed the most in heaven by their importance. That's what they were thinking. Kind of like a rank. But in fact, like the way Jesus' greatness scale works is by looking on the inside and what's really going on there. And so from a child... You know, maybe it doesn't look all that impressive from the outside, but apparently there's something on the inside of a child that matters and helps define greatness. So, what is that all about? Well, let's take a look. Here's the last observation. A fundamental fact. So he calls in this child. Here's what he says. Verse 3. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody say, enter. Enter. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has this child come in, stand there. And he says, you know what? Unless you change, in some versions it says, unless you convert, don't even talk about who's going to be great. You won't even enter. You won't even get into heaven. That's a big deal statement right there. He says, don't even worry about if like, you're going to be great or not. Like you're already assuming you're going to be there. Jesus is like saying, listen, you're not even, you're not going to be there unless actually you change and become and humble yourself like this little child. So I think the question, or a good question is, what about a child like helps with greatness? Why would he choose a child? What about a child like helps determine greatness in God's eyes or Jesus' eyes? Well, I came up with three things. One thing about children is that they're innocent and that they're sincere. It's a nice thing about kids. 
most good kids, anyways, right? But they haven't gotten old enough yet to get corrupted, right? <laughs> By the older kids. And sincere is an interesting word, right? Sincere is an older word. Uh, it actually means without wax. That's what it means, sincere, without wax. Uh, because what would happen is pottery would be made um, back then and sometimes it would have um, cracks um, or, or maybe, maybe imperfections in it. And so uh, at times uh, the potter would cover it with wax sort of cover up those imperfections um, you know, and then sell it. But it would stink if it got left out you know, in the sun and all the wax you know, burnt off and then you know, that pottery is good for nothing. And so sincere, meaning without wax. Like the kids, you know, that, again, have not been corrupted yet, they don't have to put on a show at all. They're just totally sincere, totally genuine, totally transparent. I don't know how many people you know like that. I'm not sure maybe how well you do with that. But can you imagine just for a day, just being, man, just totally sincere about stuff. When something actually bothers you, you just say that it bothers you instead of like trying to play it down and thinking maybe we're inconvenienced. No, actually, you know, that did bother me, you know? And then not afraid of their response, you know? Just being like transparent and authentic people. So I think that's one, you know, aspect or attribute of children that we want to have. Um, the second, for sure, is trust. Little kids are trusting, right? And sometimes that can go to their detriment, to their downfall. They had a, a Dateline special on, maybe like last year, a couple years ago, where they, they had these parents. And the parents made it a particular point to tell their kids, like, stay away from strangers. You know, don't talk to them. Don't ever follow them anywhere. Don't go with them. Strangers, stay away, right? And so they took these kids. And then they got an ice cream truck, and they got a stranger driving the ice cream truck. And the ice cream truck came right by their house or came right by the playground they were playing in. And then the video clip goes like to the mom or to the dad. And they're like, oh no, we, we taught, you know, little Joey how to handle this, you know, and how to deal with it. And, um, you know, the, the, then the guy's in the ice cream truck. He says, uh, you know, he's ringing the bell. And uh, the kids come running over. And he's like, oh yeah, you know, I, I can't find this particular ice cream. Can you come in the van, you know, and help me out with it? And they're like, oh no, he would never do that, you know. And here goes little Johnny right up, into, right up into the thing, you know, because he thinks the guy, you know, really lost it. And he's trying to, you know, be helpful. And then there's like six or seven other kids where there's similar situations where the parents told them otherwise, but, you know, they're trusting what the older person was saying and, you know, it just went with it. When we're older, we become adults, right? You start to understand that you just can't trust everything with total ignorance. But the way that we trust God should be similar to the way that that child might trust an adult. Well, Lord, I don't see how you could put it together. I don't see, like, the steps to get there. I don't see how the funds will show up for that. I don't see how you could do that. I'm only this person. I don't have this background. Why should I even aspire to greatness when I've never done anything even halfway kind of great in my life? Or I've made more mistakes and failures than successes. Saying, just trust me. Just trust me. 
with that childlike faith. That's, that's really hard. Because, man, as we get older, older, we get, you know, smarter, supposedly, and uh, a lot more cynical. A lot more cynical. And if maybe a person has had a really rough and bad background and childhood, and maybe that trust has been taken advantage of, you could now see like how difficult it would be for them to now trust their life to a God. Man, I can't imagine. It's miraculous to have somebody from that, with that type of background now come before God and say, God, I trust you with my life. That just blows my mind. That shouldn't happen. Shouldn't happen. But God has just taken over their heart and given them the ability to now trust. So innocence... Trust, and here's the big one that Jesus emphasized, humility. Bingo, bango, bongo, right? That's the big one. That's the one he said. So he brought this child, you know, forward and he says, you know, you won't even enter unless you humble yourself like this child. Humility, a couple things I wrote down about humility. This is a tough one. When you come into somebody and they say, I'm the most humble person you know, you know it's already a problem. Humility means knowing yourself, knowing yourself, accepting yourself. Those are two big ones right there. I don't know a whole lot of people that actually know themselves really well and then just accept themselves. I know a lot of people, and me included at times, where you can just find all the things that are wrong, really, to be honest. It's very easy to find all the things that are wrong if you want to be really honest about it. It's really easy. So to know myself and accept myself. It's tough stuff. But God can help us do it. Being yourself the best self for God. Like that's true humility. Being the best person you can but for God. And you want to avoid two extremes when you're humble. There's two extremes. Thinking too highly of yourself, which a lot of people, you know, maybe think about that extreme. But then there's the other extreme. Thinking too less of yourself. That's not good either. At all. False humility is horrible. See, we don't want to deny the gifts that God has given us. We want to use them for the glory of God. So like if God is gifting you in particular ways, which He has, it's not arrogant or conceited to say that, uh, yeah, He's blessed me in this way. You know, he's given me an ability, uh, maybe, you know, to relate to people, uh, or maybe, you know, to play music, um, or he's given me, um, I don't know, an ability to serve people, or maybe to cook well, or be hospitable, or to be generous, or whatever it is. That's a good thing. And you could tell other people about that, and then hopefully it's followed closely with a lifestyle that it's just reflected about giving all that back to him. Right? True humility. Using it all for the glory of God. So in our passage, we see some fighting words by disciples. You know, who's the best? You know, who's the greatest? What, what are they thinking? Like, you know, it just it must have felt so silly. And like, Jesus had like an issue with this a couple times with them. And one of the last times before he left... Apparently he was just feeling as a teacher that they just weren't getting it. And I know this feeling. And if you've ever taught anybody anything, you probably know this feeling. You're just like, I know they're looking at me. I know they're saying yes. I know their head is shaking. They look alert. They're being attentive. But it's not connecting. It's just not connecting. 
And so Jesus apparently had this feeling towards the end. And what he did, his final act to help show them, is he got down on both his knees, grabbed out the rag, got a basin with some water, started washing some feet. He said, this, this is it right here. This is how you humble yourself. This is how you lead other people. This is what greatness is all about, serving other people. And hopefully, it connected with them a little bit better after that. So fighting words brings a child front and center. The fundamental fact is we're not even going to get into the kingdom if we're so puffed up you know, with ourselves and thinking we're so great about things that we did. So three things that are needed to be greatly used by God. Because I want to know, I would assume that you want to know if you want to follow God, how can I be greatly used by God? What are three things that could really help me to be used by God in a powerful way? Now, right off the top, it's not going to be, I'm not going to say, you know, Bible reading. I'm not even going to say prayer. I'm not even going to say maybe just giving yourself wholly to someone else. Because here's the problem with that right away. If I just say Bible reading, then this like whole deal right here just becomes like an accumulation of knowledge. Where it stays up here and it never gets to here. So that's not good. And we don't want that. And we wouldn't say like, it's just all about prayer because like just praying about things and having no action and just constantly sitting, you know, maybe in a little, you know, prayer huddle and not going out and actually letting the Holy Spirit work through you is not going to be helpful either. And you could, I guess, give yourself and give of your time and all types of things to other people, which is good. But at the end of the day, like Jesus said before he left, hey, listen, go make disciples. Make disciples. That will involve us investing and giving to other people and serving them. But it's also going to include, man, helping to bring them into relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do. So then the question is, what are these three things? Well, here's number one. You might not think of it, but this is a big one. Number one is confession. Confession, confession, confession. If we want to be greatly used by God, confession has to be a part of our lifestyle. Our lifestyle. When we become a Christian, that's the idea when you first make your uh, professment of faith in Christ, is you confess. I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that you're Jesus. I confess that you died for my sins. And I'm going to now try, live, try and live for you. That's what it is, Confession happens as soon as you become saved or give your life to Christ. But after that, you gotta, there's a whole lifestyle after that because that Holy Spirit that has come, right, the red, the Holy Spirit that has come is now going to show us and reveal to us other funkiness that's inside of us. And we've got to confess that stuff. And it's commanded to in the Bible, in James 5.16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I mean, the first sentence, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. If I want to be greatly used by God and I'm not confessing on a regular basis, I'm living in like a delusional sort of Christian world, which I think a lot of people actually do where there's really no ever heartfelt confession of what really matters. I mean, this week, what have I confessed to this week before God? Jeez, uh, 
I don't know. I've confessed to God about being like impatient. I've confessed to God about idolatry in my life, putting other things before him. I've confessed to God about being lost a lot of times that I didn't want to. Right? These are confessions. Like these things need to come up and come out. Can't just play the Christian game. If I want to be greatly used by God, I've got to have that lifestyle of confession. And then you know what? When confession is a regular part, I'm not really interested about who's bragging about who's the greatest. Because i got all these confessions really backing up about who I really am. So that's number one. If you want to be greatly used by God, confession has to be a part of your life. A regular part of your life. To God and also to others. To God and to others. Because that's what it says right there. To each other and pray for each other. And it actually says, believe it or not, if we do that, physical healing could actually happen. People could actually be physically healed. And there's been also times where people have not confessed things and they haven't been healed. Believe it or not. And I'm also, I'm not saying that if someone maybe has been prayed for and hasn't been healed and they have confessed their sins, don't convince yourself to think that like you have unconfessed sin. I'm not saying that either. But what I'm saying is we want to get in that lifestyle of confession. So here's number two. The second thing that we need to be greatly used by God is the thing that falls right after confession is repentance. Because we could, let's say we take the huge step and we get to the part where we confess. I mean, we tell other people. But if there's never really a committed change, well, we'll just sort of be confessing and vomiting all of our stuff all of the time, but then like really never make an effort to change. So repentance is the next thing we need to be greatly used by God. And I pick this particular passage because this was like Jesus' theme message. This was his theme message. This was his thing. It wasn't even original to him. He stole it. He plagiarized from John the Baptist. But he's okay because he's Jesus. And, and it was his cousin. So there's like a family deal there. So his message is this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This was Jesus' message. Repentance. So it's like, we got to confess, you know, what happens or what God brings to our attention. And if we're Christian and things don't get brought to our attention, then something's definitely off, right? Way off. Because he will definitely show us. So then when it comes to, like, our attention, then we got to confess it. God, I'm so sorry. Now I see it. You know what? Yeah. I've been putting this before you. Or I haven't let go of that. Or I've been holding on too tightly to this. And then repentance. So then that's the time where we say, Lord, I'm going to try not to do that anymore. Like I'm going to actually try to turn from those ways. And you might be repenting again like 10 minutes later, to be honest, with some sins. Really. But then other times, maybe you won't have to. But you can look back and say, yeah, I repent. God, I gave that over to you. I repented of that. And repent means this. It just means like just turning the other way. So like, you know, if you're driving down the street and you just did a 180, not a 360, a 180 and came back, right? You just totally changed direction. Like I used to just be headed this way in this particular area of my life and, you know, doing this. But then God showed it to me and said, no, 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 no. You know, I'm like, I'm going that way, but like I want to go back, you know. But no, like I got to... Right? So we got to repent, repent, repent. And sometimes you just can't make a hard 180. Boop. Good. You can say, you can say, boop. Boop. Right? Sometimes you can't just make the hard. Boop. 
180. Like, you can't do that, you know, like all the time. It's tough sometimes. But you have to keep doing whatever it takes, you know. It's like, kind of keep getting over there, you know, until you get it. Repentance has got to be there. When John the Baptist was baptizing people, like, that was, you know, the deal. It wasn't like a, you know, a church thing that he did. Wasn't even in churches yet. His entire ministry. And people all showed up for a baptism of repentance. Oh man, Lord, I'm sorry. I need to be headed another direction. And to show that publicly, I'm going to get baptized. And that's where it came from. So we got to have confession. We got to have repentance. And then here's the last thing to be greatly used by God. We have to have surrender. Surrender. Confession, repentance, surrender. Here's the last one. Surrender says, from Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's taken from, you know, the Lord's Prayer. And I can't tell you how many times in the course of a year I hear that at school. And at Mass sometimes I hear the whole, whole student body and faculty say it. And there are powerful words and phrases in there, this being one of them. And just not having a clue as to like what they're saying. It's just what you say. I mean, look at your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as that is huge. To actually say that and mean it. God, you come into my life, you come through flow through my life, your will be completely done. That's it. I just want your will. I don't want my personal goals, my personal ambitions. I want you to set all of that for me and then I'll march out. You want me to quit this? I'll quit that. You want me to give this? I'll give that. You want me to say this? I'll say that. You want me to go here? I'll go there. That is big time. And to just be like a repeated mantra, that's not it. And that was so big, like Jesus repeated that prayer, very prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before the night of the cross. That's what was on his heart. He was still trying to get out of what God had for him. He was like, God, I know you could do anything, so like, get me out of this. I don't want to do it. And then he followed up with saying, but not what my flesh is saying, your will be done. And that's that time where you have like that voice, where you have something saying inside of us, you should do that, or you should go there, or you should step out in that area. And then our mind tries to take over and mess that up. Surrender is huge for the Christian. And now gives God the ability to work through our lives completely. And that John verse, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. I mean, it doesn't get any more surrendering than that, where Jesus is like, Man, you know, my food is just to do what God has for me. Like, that's just the way I got to do things. Totally focused. So you won't find one Christian, you won't find one that is not being greatly used by God and not doing any of those. You won't find one. It doesn't exist. It's not going to happen. You're not going to find one Christian that doesn't confess, doesn't repent, and doesn't surrender and being greatly used by God. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Because we have a choice. Right? We have a choice. He gives us that choice. We have a choice to confess, then a choice to repent, and then a choice to surrender. I guess, you know, he could take over us like robots. 
But he doesn't do that because then like our love and affection for him wouldn't mean anything. Wouldn't mean anything at all. So what I want to do is I wanted to close with um, that One Thing Remains song because that's like a powerful song, right? That song is like, that's good. I like that. And maybe during the playing of the song, maybe you'll sing, maybe your hands, your hands will be up, maybe they won't be. But right now, this morning, if you do care about being greatly used by God, now is your time between you and God. And you could even tell somebody after if you want. You could tell me if you want or somebody else you trust. Now is the time to like confess, repent, and surrender. I can't think of a better day than a Sunday to actually, I don't know how I did the rest of this week, but at least on Sunday I'm getting that done. At least on Sunday I'm confessing, I'm repenting, and I'm going to surrender. That's what we got to do at church, right? That's what we got to do at church. So what we'll do is we'll play that song, and then we'll come back together and we'll pray.